Section 26 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Rudolf Virchow, Part 1. 1821 to 1902, Medicine and Surgery, by Frank P. Foster, M.D. Stagnation was the state of medicine when the 19th century opened. It was only three years before that Jenner had announced and demonstrated the protective efficacy of vaccination against smallpox. His teaching, in spite of the vehement cavillings of the antis of his day, gained credence readily, and vaccination speedily became recognized and was constantly resorted to, but hardly any attempt at perfecting the practice was made until after more than fifty years had elapsed. His discovery, or rather his proof of the truth of a rustic tradition, fell like a pebble into the doldrums. The ripple soon subsided, and nobody was encouraged to start another. At the present time, such an announcement would be promptly followed by investigations leading up to such doctrines as that of the attenuation of viruses and that of antitoxins. But the times were not ripe for anything of that sort. Medicine reposed on tradition, or at best gave itself only to such plausibilities in the way of innovation as were cleverly advocated. Physicians strove not to advance the healing art. As individuals, they were content to rely on their manners, their tact, and their assumption of wisdom. In short, the body medical was in a state of suspended animation, possessed of a mere vegetative existence. The humoral pathology, or that doctrine of the nature of disease which ascribed all ailments to excess, deficiency, or ill concoction of some one of the four humors, yellow and black bile, blood and phlegm, had not yet lost its hold on men's convictions, or at least not further than to make them look upon exposure to cold and errors of diet as amply explanatory of all diseases not plainly infectious. The medical writers who were most revered were those who busied themselves with nosology, that is to say, the naming and classifying of diseases. Wonderful were the onomatological feats performed by some of these men, and most diverse and grotesque were the data on which they founded their classifications. To label a disease was high art. To cure it was something that providence might or might not allow. In the treatment of sthenic acute diseases, meaning those accompanied by excitement and high fever, bloodletting, mercury given to the point of salivation, antimony, and opium, together with starvation, all included under the euphemism of lowering measures, were the means universally resorted to and reputed sheet anchors. Some advance had been made from the times when disease had been looked upon as an entity to be exercised, but it was still so far regarded as a material thing that it was to be starved out. But the century was not out of its second decade when signs of an awaking from this lethargy began to show themselves. The first steps naturally were along preparatory lines, and for those we are largely indebted to the physicists, the chemists, and the botanists. Gross anatomy became better known, owing for the most part to more enlightened legislation on the subject of the dissection of the human body. Minute anatomy, histology, sprang into existence as the result of improvements of the compound microscope. Physiology took on something of the experimental, and medication was rendered far less gross and repulsive by the isolation of the active principles of medicinal plants. But it was long after all this that the telling strides were taken. Up to within the memory of many men who are now living, 
peritonitis tortured its victims to death said peritonitis being often interpreted as a manifestation of rheumatism for example and no well-directed interposition was attempted against it whereas we now know perfectly well that the vast majority of cases of peritonitis are due to local septic poisoning and for the most part quite readily remediable by the removal with a minimum of danger of the organ from which such poisoning arises almost always the vermiform appendix appendicitis of which we hear so much nowadays is no new disease it is simply the peritonitis that killed so many people in former times but while no well-informed person would now maintain that this disease was a new one there are many and those too among the best instructed who find it difficult to avoid the conclusion that if not new it must at least be a far more frequent occurrence than formerly it must be borne in mind however that in the great majority of instances in the past years it ended spontaneously in recovery and was forgotten two features of the progress in medicine in the nineteenth century negative as they may seem to have been were undoubtedly potent in the promotion of advance they were the recognition of the fact that many dangerous diseases are self-limited and the experiment of the so-called expectant treatment the result of the first of them was to teach men to desist from futile attempts to cure the self-limited diseases in the sense of cutting them short in their course and the expectant treatment followed as a natural consequence it was a method of managing disease rather than attempting to cure it there was no interference save to promote the patient's comfort to nourish him as thoroughly as might be without unduly taxing his powers and to meet complications as they arose it was stooping to conquer perhaps but it was a policy that conduced greatly to the well-being of the sick improved their chances of recovery and enabled physicians to study disease more accurately by reason of its course not being rendered irregular by meddlesome medication it has never been dropped and never will be save as such directly curative agents as antitoxins are made available in the early part of the century except for gross anatomy and operative surgery medicine was taught almost wholly so far as the schools were concerned by means of didactic lectures the drawing capacity of a professor was proportionate rather to his rhetorical powers and to the persuasiveness with which he inculcated the views peculiar to himself than to the amount of real information he conveyed to the students although the apprentice system for that was what the practice of students attaching themselves to individual practitioners whom they called their preceptors virtually amounted to in many instances made up more or less completely for the lack of systematic clinical teaching yet in the great majority of cases it amounted to little more than the preceptors allowing the student the use of his library and occasionally examining into the latter's diligence and intelligence in return for which he the preceptor required an annual fee and exacted from the student such minor services as his proficiency enabled him to render it is true the students walked the hospitals drinking in some great man's utterances but they did it in droves not a moiety of them being able to get a good look at a patient unless it was such a passing glance as might tell them that the patient was jaundiced by clinical teaching we understand teaching not in glittering generalities but in the concrete either at the bedside as the word clinical originally implied or at least with the patient actually present to illustrate in his person the professor's descriptions and the success or failure of the treatment employed the clinic is now firmly established and has been for years but it was long before this grand result was attained experimental methods of study gradually came into vogue particularly in the domain of physiology 
In this sphere, Dr. William Beaumont of the United States Army was a pioneer. His historic experiments on Alexis St. Martin, a soldier who had been wounded in the stomach and recovered with a permanent opening into that organ, will ever rank among the most important of the early experimental studies of digestion. It was not long before Claude Bernard extended similar inquiries to the other functions of the body, notably those of the nervous system. And since his time, there has been a long array of brilliant investigators of physiology and of other branches of science tributary to medicine. Experiments on living animals were almost the only means of carrying on these researches. In the early days, the animals employed were doubtless put to a great deal of pain, perhaps in many instances to unnecessary suffering, and an altogether laudable feeling of humanity has led good people to band themselves together for the purpose of putting a stop to vivisection, or at least of greatly restricting the practice and of freeing it from all avoidable infliction of pain. These praiseworthy efforts have in some instances been carried so far, unfortunately, as to seriously hamper scientific investigation. Investigation which has for its object the alleviation of human suffering and the saving of human life. We may earnestly deprecate and strive to prevent wanton reiteration of painful experiments for purposes of demonstrating anew that which is unquestioned, and we may resort to all possible means to render necessary experiments free from actual pain. From the anguish of trepidation we can seldom relieve the poor animals. But let us not block the wheels of scientific progress. At the dawn of the 19th century, to examine a sick person's pulse, to inspect his tongue, to observe his breathing, to interrogate his skin by our sense of touch, and to try to make his statements and those of his friends fit in with some tenable theory of the nature of his ailment, were about all we could do. Possibly it was because he realized, to an uncommon degree, the tremendous impediment of this narrow limitation that Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of homeopathy, cut the Gordian knot in sheer rebelliousness, and proclaimed, as he virtually did, that a diagnosis was not necessary to the successful treatment of disease, but that one only needed to know empirically how to subdue symptoms, meaning mainly, if not solely, what we term subjective symptoms, those of which the patient complains, as opposed to those that we ourselves discover. But the physical examination of the sick, before extremely meager in its sphere and restricted in its possibilities, was destined to expand before many years into the minute and positive physical diagnosis of the present day. In the year 1816, a French physician, René Theophile Hyacinthe Lenac, achieved undying fame by publishing to the world an account of his labors in the application of mediate auscultation and of percussion to the diagnosis of the diseases of the chest. It is true that no less a personage than the father of medicine, Hippocrates, is reputed to have practiced succussion as a means of diagnosis, that is, the shaking of a patient as one would shake a cask, to ascertain by the occurrence or non-occurrence of a splashing sound if the person's pleural cavity was distended partly with water and partly with air. It is probable that Hippocrates and many others after him carried the physical examination of the chest still further, for it is difficult to imagine, for example, that so simple a device as that of thumping a partition to make out the sound of a joist by the sound evoked should not early have been applied to the human chest. But, be this as it may, to Lenech belongs the great credit of having laid a substantial foundation for the physical diagnosis of the present time, and more than for laying a foundation, for constructing a fairly complete edifice. 
he who should now undertake to practice general medicine without having first made himself proficient in the detection and interpretation of the sounds elicited by auscultation and percussion in diseases of the heart and lungs would foredoom himself to failure it was not until many years later early in the second half of the century that the clinical thermometer came into general use but it soon showed most strikingly the superiority of the instrument of precision to the unaided senses of man who would think now of trying to estimate the height of a fever by laying his hand on the patient's skin or who even among the laity would be satisfied with such a procedure doubtless said the present writer in a former publication new york medical journal december twenty ninth nineteen hundred the use of the thermometer has occasionally given rise to needless alarm but almost invariably it may be interpreted with great certainty it often dispels unnecessary anxiety as in a twinkling by its negative indication and surely it is to be credited with being distinctly diagnostic in those diseases of which it has itself established the curve by the thermometric curve of a disease is understood the general visual impression made by the graphic chart of a temperature record the course of a zigzag line connecting the points indicated by the various individual observations numerous other instruments of precision are now in constant use among the most wonderful of which perhaps is the ophthalmoscope whereby we are enabled to subject the retina and intervening media of the eye to minute visual examination there is not an organ of the body that is not now interrogated daily in the way of physical diagnosis and we even examine separately the secretion of each of the two kidneys in addition there are multitudinous specific signs of which we were not long ago in complete ignorance to cite only one of these there is weidel's agglutination test by which the bacteriologist can usually make a diagnosis of typhoid fever far in advance of the time at which it could otherwise be distinguished the use of the rontgen rays in diagnosis was one of the crowning achievements of the century and now we seem about to enter upon a course of their successful employment in the treatment of disease even some forms of cancer as well as in its detection beyond the vermin that infests the skin and hair tapeworm and a few other intestinal worms little if anything was known of morbific parasites before the nineteenth century but the labors of van beneden kuchenmeister kubbold manson laveran and others have now established the casual relationship between great numbers of animal parasites gross and microscopic and certain definite morbid states this has led to a great increase in our knowledge of the connection between the parasites of the lower animals and grave disease in human beings and on this knowledge rest many of the precautions that we are now able to take against the spread of such disease from the consideration of animal parasites as the direct causes of disease we naturally come to the contemplation of the subject of insects as the carriers of disease the later years of the century have witnessed the demonstration of the flies agency in the transmission of malignant pustule and typhoid fever and that of certain mosquitoes in the conveyance of yellow fever and malarial disease we now know that bad air the original meaning of the word malaria has nothing to do with fever and ague and that swamps are not unwholesome if they are free from infected mosquitoes the mosquito does not originate the malarial infection it simply serves as the temporary host of the microorganism plasmodium malario which is the cause of the disease having obtained its transient guest from some human being consequently marshy districts that are full of mosquitoes are not malarious unless the mosquitoes are of the kinds capable of lodging the plasmodium 
and unless there is or has recently been present in the neighborhood some person affected with malarial disease. Moreover, the most virulently malarious region is a safe place of residence for human beings, provided they protect themselves absolutely against the bite of the mosquito. This has been strikingly demonstrated in the case of the Roman Campagna. From the disease-producing animal parasites, we come now to those that are believed to be of vegetable nature. Under the general name of bacteria, there are multitudes of microorganisms having pathogenic powers, each giving rise to some definite specific disease and certain associations of different bacteria causing particular morbid conditions. Generations ago, physicians had a glimmering of what we now term the germ theory of disease. From the disease-producing animal parasites, we come now to those that are believed to be of vegetable nature. Under the general name of bacteria, there are multitudes of microorganisms having pathogenic powers, each giving rise to some definite specific disease and certain associations of different bacteria causing particular morbid conditions. Generations ago, physicians had a glimmering of what we now term the germ theory of disease, as was shown by their use of such expressions as materiae's morbi and morbid poisons. Even the definite relationship of special microscopic organisms to individual diseases was foreshadowed by Salisbury nearly 50 years ago. But it was not until years after those conceptions, and in no wise descended from or led up to by them, that an intelligible and satisfactory germ theory of disease was formulated. It is to Pasteur, the immortal chemist, that we owe this theory, as well as that of the attenuation of viruses, both of more than theoretical import, since they have given us aseptic surgery, the power of frequently preventing hydrophobia, the antitoxin treatment of diphtheria, and the ability to stay the hand of death in the form of many a stalking pestilence. Every infectious disease is now held to be due to its own particular microorganism, and many diseases that were not until recently thought to be infectious are now classed as such because they have been proved to be caused by living germs. Conspicuous among these diseases is pulmonary consumption. In the case of almost every one of these diseases, we have discovered the specific germ and are able to demonstrate its presence either by its microscopical appearance, by its behavior on contact with certain stains, or by the forms that cultures of it assume. The microorganism of smallpox and that of cancer, the existence of which is assumed, have not yet been isolated. Some of these germs, like that of tetanus, lockjaw, gain entrance to the system only through a wound. Others, like those of typhoid fever and cholera, are swallowed. Others, like that of pneumonia, are inhaled. Still others, like that of tuberculosis disease, are either swallowed or inhaled. Some are believed to be transmissible to the unborn child, and a few are ordinarily harmless parasites, becoming pathogenic only when they accidentally gain access to other parts of the system than those which constitute their natural habitat. These microscopic organisms do not, by their mere presence, set up disease, unless indeed they are in such overwhelming numbers as to block the capillary blood vessels mechanically. Some of them are carried broadcast in the blood current, while others remain at the point of entrance. In either case, they elaborate certain products, termed toxins, which act either locally or through the circulation to cause the disease. These toxins eventually kill the microorganisms that produced them, quite as an animal may be smothered in its own exhalations, or at least they would do so if the host survived long enough for the completion of the process. Meantime, they have either killed the host or been defeated by certain very interesting natural processes. But before either of these occurrences has had time to take place, 
fortunately, in the great majority of instances, save those of exposure to the most deadly of infections, the vital power of the invaded individual has coped successfully with the invaders at the very point of attack, has repulsed the attacking party without appreciable impairment of its own force, and no illness results. For example, practically all of us inhaled the germ of consumption repeatedly, but most of us suffer no harm from it simply because the fluids which bathe the surface on which the germ affects a lodgment are endowed with properties which either kill the germ or rob it of its power for harm. But these properties suffice only when the general health is unimpaired. End of section 26.